0: You only die once, but you can get close a few times.
1: Many people report leaving their bodies, not all, of course. And it takes them a while to realize I'm okay here without my body. And I'm floating around, and they often then will find themselves in some other realm, some non-physical realm or dimension.
0: Bruce Grayson has interviewed thousands of people about what they call near-death experiences, where they briefly leave this dimension, their body, everything they know, and then come back.
1: Now, to get there, people often seem to go through a tunnel of some type. But how people describe it is based on what your culture tells you you to believe. In places where there aren't a lot of tunnels, they may describe falling into a well or going into the long throat of a big flower. Um, I talked to one person here who was a truck driver who said he got sucked into a tailpipe.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, Life After Life. The only thing guaranteed in life is death, and we spend a lot of time imagining what it's all about. Bruce Grayson is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia. He says he was never a spiritual person, he saw the flesh as the flesh. But interviewing thousands of people who've had near death experiences, and who witnessed something the rest of us can only imagine, has changed his perspective. He writes about their experiences in his just-released book, After, a doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. Bruce, how did you first get interested in looking into near-death experiences? What was your indoctrination?
1: Uh, Well, that's a good story, Sarah. Because I started out in life as a, as a in a scientific household, where people never talked about anything spiritual or spooky at all. Uh, Everything was just the physical world, and that was that was it. What you see is what you get, and when you died, that was the end, and that was fine with us. There wasn't any fear of death. It was just that's the end. And then when I started to become a psychiatrist, in one of the first weeks into my internship, I was asked to see a patient in the emergency room who had overdosed. As it happened, I was um, in the hospital cafeteria at the time eating dinner when my pager went off and scared the dickens out of me. I dropped my fork and it splashed some spaghetti on my tie. So I quickly tried to wipe it off and ended up making it bigger. So I quickly put on my lab coat and buttoned it up so no one could see the stain. I went down to the emergency room and the patient was totally unconscious. I could not arouse her no matter what I did. So I went down the hall to speak to her roommate And I was starting to sweat in there, so I unbuttoned my lab coat and inadvertently exposed the stain, which I didn't realize at the time. We talked for about 15 minutes, and then I stood up to shake her hand. I realized I had exposed the stain, so I quickly buttoned it up so no one else would see it. Then I went back to see the patient, and she was still totally unconscious. And I arranged to see her the next morning when she awoke. I started by introducing myself as I normally would, and she stopped me and said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. That stunned me, so I said to her, "I'm I'm surprised at that. I thought you were out cold when I saw you." And she looked at me for the first time and said, "Not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall." And she described to me what our conversation was like, where we were sitting, what we were wearing, and finally described the spaghetti stain on my tie, which had only been visible for about ten or fifteen minutes while I was talking to her roommate. There was no way she could have known that. Uh, it, It just blew me away. I just couldn't imagine how this could be. I was totally confused. However, I realized I had a job to do there. Uh, I couldn't deal with my confusion. I was there to deal with hers. So I tried to stuff my feelings away and just help her with her suicidal thoughts and so forth. So I tried not to think about it and sort of put it on my mind for a few years. In about 1975, I met Raymond Moody, who had written a book that year called Life After Life, In which he gave us the term near-death experiences and described what they were like. And he was working then with me in the emergency room at the University of Virginia. And I read his book and talked with him about it, and I was stunned to find that this incident my patient had said to me a few years earlier was not just one isolated incident, but part of a huge phenomenon that people were reporting all over the world. So I started plunging into it, trying to collect as many cases as I could. I assumed There has to be some physiological brain mechanism causing this to happen.
0: What do you mean? What could it possibly have been? Or what were some theories you had?
1: Well, you know, I was new at this. I just imagined no matter how you come close to death, one of the last things that happens is you lose oxygen to the brain. So maybe that's what causes it. Maybe lack of oxygen. Maybe it's drugs that we give to people uh, when they're near death. Maybe it's drugs your brain is producing, under stress, like endorphins? Is there some unusual electrical activity going on in the brain at this time that's causing it?
0: Of course, none of those would have explained her seeing spaghetti stains on your tie. No, they
1: wouldn't. But part of me still didn't believe that happened. You know, I'm thinking, this can't be somebody who's playing a trick on me. It, it just couldn't have happened.
0: So did you start investigating full-time? How did this no, come No, about? no, no,
1: no. You can't make a living doing that full-time. Um, I was a psychiatrist. And I was doing the near-death research in my spare time, meaning evenings and weekends.
0: How were you finding people who'd had near-death experiences?
1: Well, at first, we got them from the emergency room. And the more people heard about my interest, they started writing to me. It didn't take long to collect thousands of these cases. Give me
0: a few examples of an array of different people who've had near-death experiences.
1: Okay. One woman who was undergoing an operation in the emergency room left her body in the middle of the operation watched the operation for a while, and then drifted away and started wandering around the hospital halls. And she found herself eventually in the waiting room where her mother was waiting for her. And her mother was smoking a cigarette, which stunned her because her mother was not a smoker. She looked at her mother for a while, tried to talk to her, but her mother didn't hear her. So she went, eventually went back to the operating room and was called back into her body. Later, she confronted her mother about this. And the mother said, No, I'm not a smoker, but I was so anxious about how you were doing in the operation that I borrowed a cigarette from someone else in the the waiting room. So I did smoke one cigarette.
0: Right. So it Uh, could have been pure coincidence, but very interesting. Give me another.
1: Right. Another one was a um, 25-year-old technical writer, had been hospitalized with pneumonia, and he had one particular nurse he was very fond of who kept working with him day after day. And at one point she said, I'm taking a long weekend off, so I won't see you for a few days. Other nurses will be working with you. And that weekend, uh, while she was gone, he had another respiratory arrest where he had to be resuscitated. And during that arrest, he had a near-death experience where he found himself in a pastoral scene. And to his great surprise, this nurse, Anita, came walking towards him. He was stunned, so he said, Anita, what are you doing here? And she said, well, this is where I am now, but you can't stay here. You need to go back to your body And I want you to tell my parents that I'm sorry I wrecked the red MGB. He then found himself back in his body. And the next time a nurse came into his room, he excitedly told her about the experience. She got very upset and turned and walked out of the room. And he later learned that this nurse had taken the weekend off to celebrate her 21st birthday. And her parents had surprised her with a red MGB, which she jumped into, took off for a drive, lost control of the car, smashed into a telephone pole, and died instantly, shortly before his near-death experience. Now, there's no way he could have expected to see her or wanted to see her, and certainly no way he could have known how she died, and yet he did.
0: I have to ask you, has anyone who's heard this story and was skeptical asked you a good question that would cast any doubt on it?
1: Oh, sure. They typically ask, could he have overheard some of the nurses talking about her having died? I don't know how you combat that. Uh, You can ask all the nurses on the nursing staff whether they had talked about it in front of him. Uh, You can ask him if he heard about that. Um, But the skeptics can always say, well, they don't remember or they're not telling you the truth. We have thousands of these cases now where people have come back and told us things that can be corroborated. Jan Holden, who was a professor of the University of North Texas, collected about 100 of these cases. And she found that in 92% of them, the facts that the patient reported— were corroborated as accurate by some third party.
0: And there were facts to be corroborated? Yes. For instance?
1: Well, things like I mentioned, like like seeing the spaghetti sauce on my tie, seeing your mother smoking in the room, knowing that the nurse had died, wrecking her red MGB, and sometimes more mundane details. You know, one, one person reported in an operation looking down and seeing that one of the nurses in the operating room had mismatched shoelaces. Who would notice that? And yet it caught his eye, he reported it, and it was true. One of my favorite stories is a, a fellow, a 55-year-old guy who was brought to the hospital with chest pain, and he ended up having quadruple bypass surgery. And in the middle of the operation, he left his body and looked down and saw his surgeon, as he described it, flapping his elbows like he was trying to fly. When he told me about this, I'd been a doctor about 30 years. I had never seen or heard of anyone doing this. I thought, he's got to be hallucinating. So I talked with his surgeon and the surgeon, to my surprise, said, yeah, yeah, I did do that. He had developed this unique habit where he lets his assistant start the procedure while he gets his sterile gown and gloves on. And then he walks into the operating room. He doesn't want to t- risk touching anything that's not in the sterile field, so he places his palms flat against his chest where they won't touch anything and then supervises them by pointing things out with his elbows rather than his fingers so he won't <laughs> touch anything. The patient saw it and reported it accurately. So how do you explain that on the basis of not enough oxygen going to the brain?
0: How many people would you guess you've spoken with as opposed to read their account?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I've talked to several thousand.
0: Really? You've talked to several thousand? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, there's an organization called the International Association for Near-Death Studies, and I go to those conferences, and I talk to people there. I talk to people in airports. I talk to people everywhere, and they share their near-death experiences with me.
0: Ever doubted anybody's story? Yes. Really?
1: Yeah. I can sort of sense when people are exaggerating something or you know making something up, I can't say they are lying, but it doesn't feel right to me.
0: There was a point where you were trying to get more consistent data yes. earlier in your career, and you were using the stories from people who'd had a certain heart procedure, where their hearts had to be stopped for a little while, mm, right. asking them later, may you find out whether they had an experience.
1: Yeah. So they had a a device placed in their chest that would monitor their heart rate. And when they went into cardiac arrest, it would automatically shock them back into regular rhythm. And when they put this device in, the only way to test whether it works is to actually just intentionally stop their hearts and see where the device kicks in. So we know exactly when their hearts are going to be stopped. So it seemed to me like a great place to study near-death experiences. That was
0: smart of you to think this could be a goldmine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, so what I did was I I rigged up a laptop on top of the x-ray machine in the operating room. It was way above my head. It was nine feet up in the air. It would randomly select one out of 70 pictures to show a moving picture, and it would run for five minutes with the time being flashed on it so we'd know exactly when it happened. And then it would shut itself off, and nobody would know what the picture the computer selected, although the computer kept a record of it
0: you were trying to figure out what?
1: Whether people really can see these things from above. You can only see this this laptop if you were looking down from the ceiling.
0: You, you were assuming that people might be able to say, I left my body during the operation and I floated above the operating right. table. Well,
1: people kept reporting that to me. I was up there looking down and I saw this or that. So I thought, well, let's plant a target up there and see if they can report it. So I did that. And then when they recovered, which was often just... An hour or two later, I would ask them, did you see anything unusual in the operating room? And they would invariably say no.
0: So that was a bust. It was a bust. So which people do have near-death experiences? That's really not near-death. That's mm. merely heart-stopping.
1: Right. Well, what is near-death if it's not heart-stopping?
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Now, we, we did a study with everyone who was admitted to the, uh, the hospital here at UVA with a heart attack or cardiac arrest. And we found that of those who had a cardiac arrest, their hearts actually stopped. 10% reported a near-death experience. For the other people admitted with some other cardiac problem, 1% did. So clearly having your heart stopped is a major factor in producing a near-death experience or allowing a near-death experience to, to occur.
0: So are most people who've had near-death experiences people who've had cardiac arrest?
1: No, no, they come from a wide variety. Uh, one fellow um, in his mid-30s, he was working under his truck, and it was up on Jack's, and it fell and landed right on his chest and crushed his chest. And he immediately went into a near-death experience, a detailed review of his entire life. And what was most remarkable was, that he saw these events not only through his eyes, but through the eyes of other people involved in the incident. One time he was uh, in his teens, and he was driving his truck down the road, and a drunk man happened to wander out in front of his truck and almost hit him. So this furious, hot-running teenager stopped the truck, rolled down the window, and started shouting at the drunk man. And the drunk man reached in the window and slapped Tom across the face. Well, that was too much for this, this teenager. So he got out of the truck and started beating the man senseless until he was a bloody mass in the median strip. And then he calmly got back in his truck and drove away. Well, when he had his near-death experience in his life review, he relived this through his eyes and through the eyes of the drunk man. So through his eyes, he felt the adrenaline rush, the uh, his red his face getting red, the, the fury. And through the other man's eyes, he saw the humiliation, the embarrassment of being beaten up by a teenager, he felt the pain of the 32 blows of, the, of his fists. He felt his, his nose getting bloody, his teeth going through his lower lip. And Tom was feeling both of these at the same time, from his perspective and from the drunk man's. And he comes away from this experience, realizing we're not in this alone. We're all interconnected.
0: Why would that be an insight from a near-death experiencer? So I I take it he had this experience. Yes. Why did the others say it?
1: Oh, they almost universally feel this. They go through the experience and feel totally connected with everything, with the universe, with a deity if they see one, with other people. And if they have the life review, they often feel this empathic part of the life review where they feel things from other people's perspective as well. And this changes their lives uh, you know, One person I knew was, a, was a, a Marine sergeant in Vietnam, and he was shot in the chest and had shrapnel throughout his, his, his lungs. And during the operation, to clean out his lungs, he had a near-death experience. But when he came back and woke up, he was totally transformed by this beautiful, blissful experience. And he went back, he was sent back into the field after he finished rehabilitation and found that he couldn't shoot his gun. The idea of shooting another human being was just totally abhorrent to him. And he just couldn't function as a Marine anymore. So he ended up coming back to the States and retraining to become a medical technician. And I've heard this type of thing again and again from people who have violent professions like police officers, career criminals, who can't go back to the same profession, have to go back and retrain to to something else.
0: Could it not be having stared down death and the worst Mm. possible experience? I now am Scrooge. Mm. You know, I've seen my own death. It looked horrible. I um, want to live as fully and gloriously as I can now.
1: Right. Most people who almost lose their lives come back treasuring their lives much more. However, if you haven't had a near-death experience, that makes you much more cautious, much more conservative, much less likely to take risks because you're afraid of losing your life. Whereas if you've had a near-death experience and you know that what comes afterwards is pleasant, you're not afraid of losing your life.
0: What sorts of things have people reported to you they did? What chances did they take that they hadn't before the near death experience?
1: Well, I'll tell you a very mundane one that affects me as a doctor. When patients have a heart attack and you tell them you need to stop smoking and cut down on the fatty meats, they say, Sure, what have you say? But if they had a near death experience, they're saying, What do you mean I like smoking? I'm not going to give it up. So they become much worse patients because they no longer are afraid of dying. You've also had
0: people who had been suicidal yes, who've yes. had near-death experiences. Yeah. Well,
1: you know, one of the things that near-death experiences say most frequently is that they are no longer afraid of death or of dying. It was not something to be afraid of. And when I first heard that, as a psychiatrist, I was afraid that this was going to make people more suicidal because I had talked to a lot of people who were thinking about taking their lives but deterred because they were afraid of what might happen if they did that. So I did a study of this, and I interviewed everybody who was admitted to the hospital with a suicide attempt, and I compared those who had a near-death experience as a result of that suicide attempt with those who hadn't, and I followed them up for a year, and what I found was that those who had had near-death experiences were much less suicidal than those who hadn't had NDEs, and they said, if you're no longer afraid of dying, you're no longer afraid of living. And life becomes much more meaningful and much more fulfilling to you. They also said that in their near-death experience, they realized they're part of something greater than themselves. And the individual problems of this little bag of skin that I am are not all that I am. There's much more going on than just this physical body.
0: I have so many questions. You wrote in your book that actually it's sometimes damaging to relationships.
1: It can be. It can be. Uh, children of a near death experiencer often have a great deal of difficulty with this because they see their parent seeming to love everybody as much as they love their own children. And that's very distressing to them. Often spouses feel neglected by this. You know, I've known near death experiencers who, when something happened like Hurricane Katrina or September 11th uh, crashes, they would leave their families and rush off to see if they could help, which, of course, leaves the family feeling devastated. You know, who am I? So it can cause a lot of problems. And just on a more mundane level, their values seem to be changed. You know, one wife of a near-death experience complained to me that he doesn't care about fixing the car anymore or getting a new couch when we need one. You know, he doesn't care about those things anymore.
0: But not every person has a glorious near-death experience or an right. enticing one, right? Right,
1: right. You know, when we first started doing this research back in the late 70s and early 80s, all we heard were the blissful ones. uh, And we didn't know there were other kinds as well. And actually, it came to me in the person of Nancy Evans Bush, who took a job as the executive director of the International Association for Ninja Studies. She had actually had an unpleasant experience herself, a terrifying one.
0: Well, who would want to say, I felt like I went to hell?
1: Exactly, exactly. Because people who have had unpleasant experiences think, what's wrong with me that I have this? Everyone else has a blissful one. It's not the case that nasty people have unpleasant experiences and good people have good experiences. I've talked to people who were in prison for life who have had blissful experiences when they had a heart attack in prison. And of course, I've talked to people who seem to be leading saintly lives who've had hellish experiences, which shouldn't surprise us because we have accounts from Catholic saints throughout the ages who had dark night of the soul experiences, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, and they write very eloquently about these horrifying experiences.
0: And what do you make of them?
1: I'm not really sure what to make of them.
0: And the the historical figures, the Catholic figures, have not seen them as hell either, but rather as insightful.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Have you interviewed anyone since COVID descended during the pandemic? Who's had a near-death experience?
1: Yes, I have, yeah. I'm getting emails almost every day from people who have experiences like this. You know, we're all we're all being faced with death every day with COVID, whether it's people you know or just hearing on the daily news. So, of course, there's increased concern now about um, the stress of death and dying and what happens with this and, and the horror of it. And there's certainly horror in losing your loved ones, but there's not a horror in the death process itself. And I should say also that near-death experiencers even though they may be looking forward to their own eventual death and know that it's a beautiful thing, and know that their deceased loved ones are going to something nice, they still grieve just like everyone else. They still feel the pain of being separated from their loved ones. That doesn't go away.
0: So not everyone leaves their body and returns to the body or has that experience. What tends to be common for a near-death experience?
1: Many people report leaving their bodies, not all of course. And it takes them a while to realize I'm okay here without my body. And I'm floating around, and they often then will find themselves in some other realm, some non-physical realm or dimension. Now, to get there, people often seem to go through a tunnel of some type. Americans describe it as tunnels. It's a long, dark, enclosed space. But how people describe it is based on what your culture tells tells you to believe. In places where there aren't a lot of tunnels in third world nations, they may describe falling into a well, or going into a cave, or going into the long throat of a big flower. Um, I talked to one person here who was a truck driver who said he got sucked into a tailpipe. (laughs) That was was the metaphor that came to him most readily for
0: Do they all see relatives who urge them to go back?
1: No, no, no. Um, uh, Many of them don't see any beings at all, but a large number do report seeing deceased loved ones. Um, and sometimes the loved ones tell them to come back, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just seem to be welcoming them.
0: Have there been movies made about this?
1: Oh, gosh, yes. Yes, a, a friend of mine has listed over 100 of these movies. There's one called um, Heaven Can Wait. Some people think The Wizard of Oz was a near-death experience. She gets hit on the head and goes into this other realm. Some people say that the new Pixar movie Soul is about a near-death experience. There was one not too long ago that Clint Eastwood had directed, and it had a number of characters who had unusual experiences. One was a fellow, I believe it was Matt Damon, who played this role, who had a knee-death experience. And what they focused on was his difficulty coming back into his own life, trying to relive his normal life again, with people either rejecting him because of this or expecting him to be some type of saint or super person after this. And he had a terrible time dealing with this.
0: What do you make of it? Have your views on it or your understanding of it changed at all? In the 45 years since you first talked to the young woman who remembered seeing your spaghetti?
1: Uh, I've changed a lot. For one thing, I started out without any hint of what spirituality is, that there could be any non-physical part of us. And I am fairly convinced now that there is a non-physical part of us, and that in fact that's the most important part of us, and that it doesn't end when our physical body ends. I said, I'm fairly convinced because I'm still a scientist, and I'm still a skeptic, And I think, well, part of me thinks you could be misinterpreting the data, but me, that's not the scientist, thinks, eh, -eh, this is really, this is for real. And, uh, you know, most near-death experiences, when they start to tell you about their NDE, start by saying uh, there just aren't any words for it. But they all agree on how it feels to be out of the body and in this other realm. And it's a blissful, freeing, loving sensation And I do expect that when I die. I don't know what to expect. In fact, I'm sure it's something I can't even imagine stuck in this little tiny brain of mine. But I do think it's going to be something that not only can I not imagine now, but I can't imagine how blissful it's going to be when I get there.
0: You've also come to think that we are more psychically connected. And you very firmly feel this, that we are more psychically connected than you had any idea when you were a young man.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I don't know whether that's coming from my experience with near-death experiences or just getting older in life and realizing, you know, we're all all in this together, really. Several near-death experiences have used the metaphor of a wave in the ocean, that the wave is distinct from the rest of the ocean, at least for a while. But it's made of the same stuff the rest of the ocean is as well. And it came out of the ocean, and it'll go back into the ocean. That's the way we are. We've come out of this, whatever you want to call it, a universal consciousness, a Godhead, and we're going to go back into it.
0: Where do you think our memories go when we die?
1: I don't know how much of our individual memories or personalities we take with us. It's possible that we may continue to maintain our individuality and our personalities uh, after we pass through this through death. But again, what near-death experiences tell me may be just the first few minutes of the dying process. And maybe something happens after that initial stage. You know, once you reach the point where you can't come back to life, maybe things are different there. And maybe the distinct personality we take with us phase after the first 10, 15 minutes, two days, whatever. Um, so I don't know what to expect after we die. But I do expect something. If I'm wrong, I won't be disappointed because I won't be there to know about it.
0: Bruce Grayson, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason.
1: Well, thank you, Sarah. This has been a pleasure to talk to you again.
0: Bruce Grayson is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia. His new book is After A Doctor Explores What Near Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. If you're lucky, you've been able to replace your morning commute with opening your laptop at home in your PJs. But have you really been able to make up for all those years of rushing to work, rushing home, and rushing everywhere in between? Alexandria Reynolds is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia College at Wise. She says it's not actually possible to get rid of our sleep debt. But hey, at least we feel better. Alexandria, so much has changed this year, including, I imagine, sleep cycles. Have you heard whether people actually have been sleeping too much now that so many are working from home?
2: So it's really interesting because it turns out there's two kind of opposing results. So there's the one group that seemed to be sleeping more, because they can, because they're working from home. But there's also another group who seems to be sleeping worse. What's likely happening is that those individuals who are sleeping more may not necessarily be getting better sleep. Because if you think about, you have the time to sleep now, right? You're working from home, you lose your commute. But all this anxiety and stress from living in today's society of the pandemic world and the uncertainty, I think what we're really going to find and what we're currently finding is that even though people are sleeping more or at least in bed longer, the sleep that they're getting isn't better. And so they might be waking up a lot during the night. They may feel a lot of anxiety around, you know, life. And so even though we do see people sleeping more, um,
0: more doesn't always equal better. But can more equal better? Some people are probably just sleeping and appreciating they don't have to race into work.
2: That's true. That's true. So in the field of sleep, there's this really hot debate if you can actually make sleep up or not. We call it a sleep debt. So like almost like a you know a financial debt that you accrue over time, but with sleep. And so some scientists are very adamant you can't make this up. Once you've lost that sleep pre-pandemic, you're never going to make that up, even if you get to sleep in for the next two years. Then the other side says, no, 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 no. You can absolutely make that up. And so this little extra time here and there that you're getting or sleeping in on the weekends really does boost that debt and that it sort of rolls over and you don't necessarily accrue it over time.
0: What's been your own experience with sleep? Would you say your sleep is actually better?
2: I would say, honestly, the So for me, the pandemic has been very stressful. I have three young kids and there was a lot of uncertainty with, you know, what's going on with schools. And I've been able to make more time for sleep, but I don't necessarily know if my sleep's been better just because of that anxiety and stress that I've been dealing with just from the pandemic. And honestly, parents' sleep should be in an entirely own category because yeah. <laughs> most parents aren't getting enough sleep. Regardless, that's one of the the top uh, groups that are that are really the most sleep deprived is is parents. You know, your your kids are waking up all hours of the night. Um, I would say that I've been able to make more time for sleep, but I don't necessarily know if my sleep's been better just because of that anxiety and stress that I've been dealing with just from the pandemic.
0: There are a lot of people who still feel groggy, even though they get longer sleep, let's say in the morning than they're accustomed to. Why would we still be groggy even when we're extending our sleep duration?
2: So there's a couple of explanations for that. Imagine like you're in bed and you wake up and you feel really good, but it's still an hour before your alarm clock goes off. And you go, you know what? I'm just gonna roll over and I'm just gonna go back to sleep for another hour, even though I feel good and I could get up what probably happened is you woke up during a REM cycle, which is great. You should have gotten up because an hour <laughs> later, you're going to wake up and you're going to feel awful. It, you know Your, your alarm clock's going to be waking you up. You're not going to be waking up naturally. You're going to hate the world. You're going to feel really groggy and tired. And what probably happened is you woke up during the wrong part of sleep because you're... Sleep has an architecture, we call it, right? It's made up of different types and stages of sleep. And the best time to wake up is during REM or rapid eye movement sleep. And this is the type of sleep where you're more likely to experience really vivid dreams. And also, if you look at the brain waves, it looks really similar to when you're awake. And so this is the, the best time to wake up. And so we see these 90-minute these cycles of sleep that rotate through different kinds and types of sleep and stages. And at the tail end of those cycles, you have your REM cycle. And so if you're able to time it right, you can wake up
0: really refreshed. So what do you suggest to your students as far as the best practices for getting the best quality sleep they can get? It's one of those things
2: that you can look at all the research and you can look at all the recommendations, but you have to know your body. There's so much individual variance. So the number one thing is just being flexible and understanding your body and, and listening to your body and what it wants. The second big thing is making time for sleep because I have so many times students say, oh, I'm an insomniac. And I say, okay, well, how much sleep did you get last night? And they'll say three hours. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's not, that's not a lot of sleep. And then I'll say, well, how much time did you give yourself to sleep? And they're like, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, you know, what time did you lay down in bed and 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 then, you know, wake up in the morning? And they say, oh, well, I only gave myself three hours to sleep. I said, that's not an insomniac. <laughs> that's not yeah. making the time to <laughs> sleep. <laughs> a true insomniac would make eight hours, you know, to sleep and then not be able to sleep that eight hours. Um, so just making the time for it, being consistent, going to bed the same time, waking up, trying to keep a nice rhythm. Every single cell in your body has a clock. And it wants to be aligned, and it wants to be aligned with the day. And so the best thing you can do is align it with light. So first thing in the morning, within 30 minutes of waking up, getting some natural sunlight, that's going to start you out the day to be able to maintain a really great rhythm for the rest of the day.
0: What are our brains doing that's so important when we fall asleep? For the longest
2: time, we thought it did nothing. We thought it was just quiet and sort of shut off and almost in like a dead like state. But we know now that is so not true. Your brain is doing so much. During sleep, it's doing things sometimes in reverse compared to when we're awake It's all the same structures and all the same systems, but they have to work differently. So we know that the brain does things like clear waste and uh. so when you build up throughout the day you you know you build up waste products in your brain, and then at night when you sleep, it clears that uh, that waste out and it also does things like concrete our memories or we call it consolidating memories. So your brain's going through all of the things that it did that day, and it's sorting it out, right? So it's almost like a file system, and it says, okay, well, let's trash this memory. That's not important. Let's keep this one because that's important. And it's also restoring things. It's, it's cleaning things up, and it's making sure that you're ready for, you know, the, the next day. And so we know that certain kinds of Alzheimer's and dementia are caused by this accumulation of waste or proteins.
0: You've said that with your students, you often say, I want you to keep a dream journal, And I don't Mm -hmm. want these dreams traceable. Don't put your name on it. But we'll talk Mm -hmm. about the complexity of what people think and experience during their sleep. And some of these dreams are long, fascinating, and elaborate, right? Oh, yes, definitely.
2: They're very telling. The dream theories run from, you know... Completely spiritual to all the way to dreams mean nothing and it's just your brain interpretation, and so and everything in between. So the students are, are actually pretty well read on the different kind of dream theories, but the interpretations are fascinating because they go everywhere with them. And you can tell from student to student, you know, they'll pull the little tiny details out. And, you know, weave this, this really interesting kind of narrative about, oh, what what is this person going through right now? And it's really just really interesting to hear what, what they have to say about it.
0: So we know parents struggle to get a good rest, but you also have a theory that students should be taught in school about sleep and how to get the best sleep. Tell me about that. What I would really love to see
2: is sleep education being taught in schools. I would love to see it starting in pre-K, going all the way up to college age and building on that knowledge as the person grows and learns more about the body. It's important to know the connection between sleep and mood and sleep and the body and healing, and also very important to know how to sleep. So those best practices and really good sleep hygiene to get good quality sleep. Not only is education important, but I also think that it would lead to a society that values sleep much more greatly than it currently does.
0: andrea reynolds is a professor of psychology at the university of virginia college at wise if you go to youtube you can find thousands of videos that promise to hypnotize you you'll hear gentle music playing under soft soothing voices these voices want you to slip into a trance letting your mental guard down and becoming open to suggestion the idea is that through hypnosis you can lose weight get rich even have a time-traveling spiritual experience. Most of us think of hypnosis as entertainment or maybe a controversial form of therapy, but when hypnosis first came on the scene, Americans thought of it as a form of scientific progress. Emily Ogden is an assistant professor of English at the University of Virginia and the author of Credulity, A Cultural History of Mesmerism.
3: I think that hypnosis raises the question of what we mean by real in a way that few other things are able to do. And that's what keeps coming back again and again for me as I think about it. So, for example, if someone hypnotizes you and gets you to quack like a duck, but you did it because you wanted to play along, but then sort of as you were playing along, you began to think, I don't know why I'm doing this why am I quacking like a duck? This doesn't make any sense. This isn't like me. Was that real or was that fake? So sometimes as we think about hypnosis, we find ourselves moving from the fake to the real and back again in ways that we don't expect. It is
0: fascinating that you've written a book on the history of mesmerism. Is mesmerism
3: the same as hypnosis, just another word for it? It's very similar, and it was a practice of putting people in trances that preceded hypnosis historically. So it started in the late 18th century, whereas hypnosis started in the middle of the 19th. And hypnosis is a development from mesmerism. It was actually an attempt to make it more scientific. So people who thought parts of mesmerism aren't real, in particular the theory that it involved the transfer of an invisible fluid from one body to another— Those people became hypnotists, and they said it's not about a fluid. It's about suggestion. It's about our minds, our tendency to be influenced by what other people think. So that's the difference between the two, whether there's a fluid transferred between the minds of the participants or not and and when it happens. And who dreamed up mesmerism? It was a physician named Franz Anton Mesmer who was educated in Vienna and who had been... searching around for a way to capitalize on all the new kinds of science that were happening at that moment. Benjamin Franklin's discoveries in electricity, Newton's discoveries in gravitation, and he finally hit on the idea of what he called animal magnetism, which was meant to be an invisible fluid, like what Benjamin Franklin thought that electricity was, that passed between bodies and that circulated through the nerves, so that if you had a blockage in it in your nerves, you would become ill. And he said, I can cure those blockages. I can clear them out and let you become well again. And that cure had many other effects, too. It made people convulse. It made them become strangely attracted to and drawn to the mesmerist. And those were all the side effects that ultimately became more interesting to people than the cure that Mesmer had originally proposed.
0: And so mesmerism, through him and then on and on, took flight in France, even though Ben Franklin himself debunked
3: it. That's right. And it it was popular before Franklin encountered it. That was why Franklin encountered it at all. He was appointed by a group of scientists to, in effect, debunk it. And then what happened was that, that as a result of their investigation, they found a part of mesmerism that was real. And that was the bond that was established between the mesmerist and the subject. That was the tendency that the subject had to believe what the mesmerist said. And this Franklin called imagination. We would now call it suggestion. And you have titled your book Credulity. That's right. Because that to me is what's interesting about mesmerism. It's a theory of credulity. Mesmerists came to say, we're the ones who can explain to you, why do you believe other people? But also it was something that was constantly being accused of credulity. There were debunkers who would say only credulous people would fall for this. Tell me about the secret investigation
0: and the report that was sent to the king of France about the effect of mesmerism on women.
3: Yes. So in addition to publishing a report that went to everyone that said Mesmer is using his willpower and charisma to influence people, makes them think that something's happening when it isn't, The commission also published a secret report for the King's Eyes Only, in which they stated their strong suspicions that Mesmer's female patients were having orgasms and that this was what was happening in his treatment salons when women were convulsing and and, um, fainting and, and falling against his padded walls as he manipulated their stomachs. After the revolution, people regrouped, Mesmerists regrouped, and they said both What Mesmer said and what Franklin said was true. We were manipulating imagination. We were showing how belief affected people. That's what we were always doing, and that's what the animal magnetic fluid truly is. So they combined the theories of this famous first debunker and this founder into what became mesmerism and then hypnosis as we know it today. How did it take America by storm in the years before the Civil War? There was a Frenchman who was, in fact, a colonist in Guadeloupe. He was an enslaver, and he had been born on a plantation in Guadeloupe. He was educated in France, and then he came to the United States, where he uh, settled eventually in one of the new industrializing towns in Massachusetts. And he began trying to offer mesmerism to factory owners as a way of making their laborers more docile. And that was how he had seen, in effect, planters or enslavers using mesmerism on their slaves in Guadeloupe. So he made a connection between these two kinds of labor. So it was supposedly something that actually worked? He said that it did. And uh, it did clearly have effects on on people, even if those effects were what we would call suggestion. People would become drowsy. Some people became clairvoyant. They could see things that they couldn't otherwise see. And while there were always people who thought that these effects were feigned or imagined or not real, there were always people who thought, too, that they were real. Is that what then led,
0: as you write, to this being used in factories in New England to help
3: solve work problems with female workers. That was what Poyan hoped, the founder hoped, and it seems that that never took off. There weren't actually institutionalized programs of the sort that he imagined, but I think that we can tell from the way that he presented mesmerism, the way that he courted the favor of factory owners and, and managers— that he thought it might be effective in that way. And one of the earliest experiments that he did that got traction in the U.S. where people really paid attention was with a factory worker named Cynthia Gleason. And he managed to make her wake up at a precise time that he had foreordained, just as the factory bell in towns in industrializing New England at that time would make workers wake up in the morning so that they could report to the factory at the appointed hour. And that factory bell was, for people at the time, a real symbol of the changes that industrialization was making in the landscape. So he seems to have been aligning mesmerism with those changes. Do you think mesmerism would work on skeptics or just people who were especially credulous. (laughs) One of the things that we often think is that it only works on the credulous. And there's a truth to that because you need to have a certain willingness to be mesmerized. And yet what we see over the course of the history of mesmerism is people switching camps. So somebody will start out as a skeptic and find him or herself... Becoming less and less skeptical as, as the interview goes on. So there was a famous case of a, of a newspaper editor in New York in the 1830s, William Leatstone, who went to Providence with the express purpose of debunking a clairvoyant who said that she could do spirit travel. And by the end of his interview with her, he was completely converted, and he published the pamphlet that made her name and that had really a lot to do with the increase of mesmerism's fame in that period. So skeptics did sometimes get on board. You also write that a lot of times the very mesmerists would
0: incorporate these debunking accusations into their act. They did, and in
3: particular, they would— Either separate themselves from the debunkings of the past and say, We're no longer doing mesmerism, we're doing something new, and it turned out to be exactly the same thing under another name. Or they would simply take the demonstrations that debunkers had done in order to show that mesmerism was false and repurpose them as ways of showing that it was true. So there was a debunker named J. Stanley Grimes, who himself became a kind of a mesmerist, who showed that one set of claims, which is that you could mesmerize bumps on the head and cause personality manifestations to happen, like you would touch the part of the head responsible for love and you would get amative behavior. Grimes showed this wasn't true. This was all suggestion. But then the next generation of mesmerists used Grimes' technique for showing that it was suggestion to launch the very first mass audience mesmerism that was performed on stages before groups of thousands of people. And so in that way, there really was a traffic back and forth between those who believed and those who didn't. Have you ever seen anybody do it or purport to do it? I have. Mesmerism, I should say hypnosis, today is performed in two kinds of contexts. One is on stage, and um, that's often for entertainment so that we can see other people do things that they wouldn't have expected that they would do. And the other is in therapeutic uh, contexts where therapists will offer suggestions that are kindly meant. They will uh, suggest that you stop smoking, for example, and that will help you to achieve that goal which you have set for yourself. And so I've, I've seen it happening in both of those contexts.
0: This is such a fascinating research and book topic.
3: You must have a lot of people deeply interested when you tell them this is what you wrote about. It is something that provokes a lot of interest. And one of the things that has fascinated me the most about people's responses is that they often track with the responses that I find in the 19th century, which is that some people, sometimes, for example, psychotherapists, need me to know that hypnosis was a fraud. So they need me to know that we no longer believe that it's possible to hypnotize people. Others need me to tell them whether hypnosis is a fraud. So they want to know right away, is it real? And I, I don't know how to answer that question because that for me is the central question. What do we mean by it being real? But it fascinates me that we still have that same interest that people had in the 19th century in making sure that we draw the right lines between reality and unreality when it comes to how we influence each other beyond reason. Uh, And that's, for me, what's the enduring fascination of this topic. Well, Emily Octon, thank you for talking with me about it today and With Good Reason. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Emily Ogden is an assistant professor of English at the University of Virginia. Her book is Credulity, A Cultural History of Mesmerism. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. uvahealth.com With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quanz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.